Welcome to Panorama. I am your co-host, Dan Torres, and I am joined today with Sarah Robertson. Hi. Hi, Dan. Well, you want to tell us who we have on the show today? We have uh, Westfield State University professor George Michael on the show to talk about the far right in America. It's oh, a fascinating boy. topic. Yes, it is a conversation we should have, and it's very interesting. And he's a researcher for many decades on this topic, and there's so much to discuss because I've been reading a lot about it. Professor George Michael, welcome to the show. Hello, Dan. Hello, Sarah. Hi, welcome. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you have been teaching lately at Westfield State University? Sure. I teach uh, mainly three courses, a course in Homeland Security, uh, another course in terrorism, and another course on organized crime. And how long have you been teaching there? I've been teaching at Westfield State for about nine and a half years now. Uh, prior to that, I was an associate professor of nuclear counterproliferation and deterrence theory at the Air War College in Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, prior to that, I taught at a branch campus of the University of Virginia in a place called Wise in southwestern Virginia. Uh, okay, great. So uh, let's get started here. Uh, you wrote a article for the website, The Conversation, that I read. And that's what precipitated me to uh, contact you. And you talk about something that's, uh, that you described as a neo-reaction movement. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that is? How do you define it? Yeah. The neo-reaction movement emerged in Silicon Valley around 2007. Someone by the name of Curtis Yarvin began writing under the pseudonym Mencius Mulbug. Um, I don't know why he chose that um, pseudonym. Mencius, of course, was a very prominent ancient Chinese uh, philosopher. But this notion of neo-reaction, uh, it's sometimes referred to as the Dark Enlightenment. And neo-reaction and the Dark Enlightenment, it espouses an anti-egalitarian and anti-democratic worldview. Yarvin advocates a vision of society uh, sometimes referred to as neo-cameralist. Uh, the notion of cameralism goes back to Frederick the Great, the great Prussian leader in the 18th century, and it called for a strong, centrally managed economy. And so basically, Yarvin updates that concept. He calls for a strong executive who could lead the country without the encumbrances of liberal democratic procedures. And so in that vein, he spoke in approvingly of the late uh, Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, of course, succeeded Mao Zedong, and Deng Xiaoping was one of the main architects of the Chinese economic uh, miracle. And so Yarvin believes that these kind of incremental reforms uh, to try to save the American government will not work. Instead, he calls for a hard reset. He invokes this acronym called RAGE, uh, which basically stands for Retire All Government Employees. He believes that would be a crucial step. And so basically, basically he advocates a new regime that is compared to monarchy. He thinks the monarchical system is actually more efficient, but it's really unrealistic to have a hereditary monarchy today in contemporary America. So he calls for something that might be more analogous to a corporate CEO. 
Tell us a little bit about who the philosophers are that influenced him. You, you mentioned uh, one, but I'm curious to know, do uh, understand this movement as religious conservative movement? You, you talked about monarchy. Has it got tones of fascism into it? Is it white supremacist? H- how do you understand this movement today politically, given all the different factions? Okay, let me tr- let me try to unpack that. Okay, I wouldn't really characterize it as white supremacist um, neo reaction as such. For his part, Yarvin he wrote an essay called "Why I Am Not a White Nationalist," but nevertheless, he uh, also conceded that he's not exactly allergic to this stuff. To use his term, mm-hmm. like this idea that there could be differences in IQs between blacks and whites, and that race can be important, that it can influence. Uh, things in society. As far as his philosophical influences, the main person is probably Thomas Carlyle. He was a 19th century political philosopher, and uh, it was he who really convinced Yarvin that libertarianism was ultimately doomed without authoritarianism. Another important influence was James Burnham. He was an American political theorist that was writing primarily around the 1940s and 1950s. He was a former Trotskyite, and he's probably best known for the authorship of a book called uh, The Managerial Revolution. And in it, he predicted that um, not only the Soviet system, but the US system would more and more be dominated by bureaucrats over time, that they would exert more and more control over our lives. And that would be detrimental, that they would not really be uh, necessarily uh, the best managers. And finally, Hans Hermann Hoppe, he's a German-American political theorist. Back in 2001, he wrote a book called Democracy, the God that Failed. And he also uh, was an advocate of monarchy. He thought monarchy was actually a more efficient system than democracy. And so he actually called for something like a strong executive uh, to lead the country. Some other important philosophers in that movement, uh, neo-reaction, include people like Nick Land. He's from England, and he's probably best known for applying this notion of accelerationism uh, in the far right. Now, the person who really first expounded on this notion of accelerationism was the Bolshevik leader, Vladimir Lenin, the person who engineered the Bolshevik revolution in 1917. And so he believed in this notion of worse is better. Basically, the more chaotic the conditions uh, became in the capitalist world, uh, that people would be more amenable to the message of the Bolshevik or the Communist Party. So in that same vein, basically, Nick Land has applied that to the contemporary West. Um, another important philosopher in the subculture is Julius Evola. Hmm. Uh, Julius, uh, Julius Evola was an Italian, and um, although he never joined the fascist party, he did support Mussolini, but he wrote a book called Ride the Tiger. And basically the idea was that uh, like-minded people of the far right, they had to kind of ride out this kind of dark age before uh, there would be a new golden age. He believed in a cyclical view of history. Mm. Um, And where does Curtis Yarvin fit into this modern neo-reaction movement? What is it about, like these policies that he's learned from these past philosophers, what is 
it about his writings that is gaining traction today? Well, mostly because he's been a good promoter and he's produced such a prodigious, a prodigious corpus of literature. He's written so much and uh, he's engaged people, his followers, and so uh, just that he's been a good promoter. Um, he went by the uh, pseudonym uh, Mencius Maldbook for a long time, then about uh, probably around seven or eight years ago, he finally started using his real name. And so because he's expounded on so many different things in politics, uh, it just, he's came, he's come to be recognized as really uh, the, uh, the, the court philosopher and where of this were, and, and where was he doing some of this writing, both as Mencius Moldbug and then as himself? Well, he was in Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley uh, left a big impression on him. In the mid-2000s, there was stagnation in the U.S. economy. But the one uh, sector of the economy that really seemed to be innovative and productive and had a bright future of course, was the computer industry, software. And so he took some lessons from that. Why was it, what was that, what was it about that particular industry that enabled it to thrive? And one reason was because he thought now the organizational structure of a lot of these different firms, they had a strong uh, uh, central figure, often a charismatic figure, uh, people like Peter Thiel, uh, other people like uh, uh, the, um, uh, the person who wants to buy Twitter. Uh, Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon Musk. Thank you. Yeah, Elon Musk. Yeah, uh, Bill what Gates, so on and so forth. And uh, yeah, these people, he thought that were strong executives and uh, they really uh, enabled the uh, these various uh, firms to thrive in this particular industry. And it was they who were really, uh, really uh, pathbreakers in the, the American economy. Okay, before we take a break, uh, tell us a little bit about the concepts that uh, Curtis Yarvin uh, discusses in his blog that he has been known for called the cathedral and then taking uh, certain pills, I guess it's red pill or black pill. Can you tell us a little bit about that? First, the cathedral. Basically, he sees this, uh, that as the, the basic, the general name for the ruling regime in the West. According to this framework, uh, the most prestigious, influential institutions in America, they're all tied together and they seemingly move in one direction without any guiding central force. And so he believes all opinion makers, especially people in academia and journalism, reading from the same book at the same speed. And so he argues that this cathedral is this kind of self-reinforcing entity. Uh, individual journalists and professors are rewarded when they follow this ruling ethos. Uh, those that do otherwise, they can be punished or at least face diminished career prospects. And so as a, con a consequence, um, ambitious individuals are really incentivized to embrace this kind of liberal dogma. And so he emphasizes that the cathedral has no center. And that's one of the reasons why it's difficult for its detractors to attack it. So it's everywhere, uh, but nowhere as mm. he characterizes it characterizes it and so he thinks this uh, cathedral is deeply dysfunctional and ultimately it will lead to hell and so you mentioned the the black pill the blue pill then uh, the red pill and things like that Yarvin is believed to have popularized that mean the etymology of it goes back to the matrix films mm -hmm. uh one character i i've only seen the last matrix film the one that came out a couple months ago mm -hmm. uh, so you might be able to help me out here i think this uh the character 
name is Neo or yep, ne- Nemo. That's right, Neo. Yeah, and so he's offered a chance uh, to take uh, the blue pill and remain in this kind of ignorant bliss, or he can take the red pill and say, see how the world really works, which is often discomforting. And so that's the essence of the red pill, Mm. uh, to see the world as it really is, warts and all. So that's the essence of the the red pill. And it has gained currency, alt-right subculture, and also uh, the so-called manosphere. And I might add that there's some overlap between those two movements. Absolutely. So that's the the distinction between the blue pill, uh, the red pill, and sometimes people will talk about the white pill and the black pill. And the way I understand that someone who's black pilled is basically red pill, but he has a very pessimistic outlook Mm. on the world. Well, Mm -hmm. things are too far gone, they can't be rescued. Uh, And white pill means a person that's um, uh, basically red pill, but he has a more optimistic outlook on the world. Wow, that's that's interesting how how it starts from a blog and oh, a movie and then a blog and then a guy with a conversation and I'm sure it's online. Um, and we wanted to ask you about two Republican Senate candidates. Um, one of them in Ohio, J.D. Vance, and another one in Arizona, Blake Masters. You wrote about these candidates um, being a significant development in right wing politics. J.D. Vance, as uh, most of us know, was the author of the book Hillbilly Elegy, which kind of took out took off and became infamous. Uh, what some people thought was a very accurate portrayal of Valachia and what some people thought was kind of sensationalized. What's the significance of the movement around these two candidates and how it's different than previous right-wing movements? Well, I think it's important because, um, A, we see that they've echoed some of the talking points of people like Curtis Yarvin, this idea of rage, getting rid of all government employees, and uh, that's one thing. And uh, another big thing is that the Yarvin, J.D. Vance, Blake Masters, they're all close. To, uh, they're all very close to Peter Thiel. Uh, Peter Thiel, of course, is an illustrious venture capitalist. And uh, he was the first outside investor of Facebook. Uh, he was also involved with Elon Musk for, uh, with PayPal, and uh, he has his own form, uh, Palantir Technologies. And so uh, he's very important. He was a, a big supporter of Donald Trump. And so the, the fact that a lot of these are all uh, these people are connected, uh, some very prominent people, of course, like Peter Thiel, who supported both J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, and likewise, so has Curtis Yarvin. And so I think that's very significant because historically the far right has been really relegated to the margins of society. Uh, the figures, the main figures have been radioactive. They do not get invited to uh, debate before the League of Women Voters or anything like that. But this suggests that some uh, figures in the far right are actually having an influence on some people who are running for higher office. Not only that, that they're open, they're, they'll openly affiliate with people like that. And of course, uh, Peter Thiel brings a lot to the table as well. Not only is a very well is a very wealthy man. He's estimated to be, I think, worth about seven billion dollars. But he has a lot of influence not only in politics today, but also in Silicon Valley. And very interestingly, I uh, recently discovered that Peter Thiel is on the um, steering committee 
of something called the Bilderberger Group. I don't know if you folks have ever heard of that before, the Bilderberger Group. I have. Uh, yeah, it was founded in around, uh, I think, around 1952 or so. But it's supposed to be the quintessential globalist organization. It's a place where uh, the titans of finance, academia, and government, they meet once a year, usually around the end of the summer, to talk about uh, main issues that are confronting the world. And they try to come to some consensus where they can have common policies to address the pressing issues of the day. And so uh, I was really surprised to hear that Peter Thiel was affiliated with the Bilderberger group because it often feeds, the group often feeds into these conspiracy theories that they're in in the forefront of trying to usher in the uh, new world order. Right. I mean, it's basically saying that the guy leading this, you know, at least supporting this right-wing movement is actually at the same time among the global elites. So yeah, and I've weird. never heard of anybody who's sympathetic to the far right being invited into the Bilderberger group before. Right. So that was really wow. surprising to me. Yeah, that is surprising. But uh, I'm curious to know from you, why do you think the far right has been more successful in capturing the Republican Party than the far left has been at capturing the Democratic Party? Well, I wouldn't say the far right has been more successful. Okay. Um, for years, the far right has often uh, been ostracized from main, mainstream conservatism. Um, but with the emergence of Trumpism, the gap between the far right and the mainstream conservative movement seems to have narrowed. For its part, the far left, I think, has more respectability in the mainstream that the far right does historically. And so I think the Democratic Party seems to be more welcoming to the far left than the Republican Party does for the far right, although um, I add that could be changing. It's interesting. I, I'm curious to know as well, what role do you uh, see the internet and specifically social media having in a lot of this, right? I mean, it feels like, you know, if like 1950s, there's the John Birch Society. I mean, they've always mm -hmm. been these radical fringe right-wing movements, and, and you've mentioned that they, they've never been able to have uh, the influence that they have today on the Republican Party. And I'm curious to know how much do you think being online and capturing that movement Movement allows their radical ideals to proliferate. I'm just curious to know what you think about the internet's role in all of this. Yeah, the in, the internet is very important because mm -hmm. uh, the far right for years was really locked out of the marketplace of ideas, at least in the mainstream. They could print uh, their magazines and all that, but it was often underground. Couldn't really find their literature in uh, regular bookstores or magazine stands. And so they took to the internet very quickly. It was around 1995 that someone by the name of Don Black, a close affiliate with of, uh, David Duke, he founded a, uh, a website called Stormfront. Mm. And it really expanded over the years. And so, yeah, far-right activists were among the forefront and those people who really took advantage of this new medium of the internet. Their ability to get the message out even expanded with the introduction of social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook. And so that enabled them to reach out to other people who might be on these different various social media platforms. So yeah, that uh, has they've really taken advantage of that. There have been efforts to deplatform uh, some of these people as well. 
And that has been a setback and to demonetize some of their sites. So that hurt as well. And as far as the far left, yeah, they've taken advantage of that. There are groups like Antifa and Echo, uh, Echo groups like Earth First. They've been able to take advantage of the Internet as well. So it's not been something that's been exclusively dominated by the far right. And how do you counter something like that? I think, well, I think the marketplace of ideas, I'm kind of a traditional uh, traditional First Amendment advocate. And I think, yes, these things should really be uh, debated in the marketplace of ideas and good ideas, I think, ultimately will prevail over bad ideas. Hmm. And I almost feel like the deplatforming of some of these like radical right wing thinkers has almost done more to radicalize them. It's almost I think so. Yeah, yeah. it has radicalized them. Moreover, they are making efforts to be self-sufficient. So they get demonetized, uh, for example, uh, with, with certain platforms. And so they'll try to create their own where they can circumvent that mm. using things like Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies. And so, yeah, it might actually then uh, enable them to be more self-sufficient in the long run. Have you done any research on the new or like Trump's version of Twitter, Truth Social? Is that it, it have any significance in, in this sphere? I don't know. It's. I think it's really too early to tell. But yeah, I think that there are other platforms. Um, uh, remember, um, one of the reasons why Twitter became such a popular social media platform, for better or for worse, was was Donald Trump. Uh, he was right. able to get his message out. It was a kind of a symbiotic relationship. Uh, he, in true populist fashion, could really rise over the, the elites and get his message out directly to the people. And so, of course, uh, a lot of people wanted to hear his message. And so that created more users on Twitter. Well, and so, yeah, it would be interesting to see if these new platforms, if they can... Uh, find her own niche and uh, be used as an alternative platform to things like Twitter. Listening to you talk about the far right and Curtis Yarvin and the neo-reaction movement, I'm intrigued to know from you what you think the election of Barack Obama did to spur this movement. Do you think it was a triggering moment for the far right? And how do you, how do you understand race, its relationship to these far right uh, movements today? It certainly doesn't encompass all the groups. Yeah, race features very prominently in the far right, especially in uh, this section of the far right that people would call the white nationalist mm -hmm. movement. So the election of Barack Obama certainly had a mobilizing effect on the far right and uh, specifically the white nationalist movement. As we know for years, the US Census Bureau, Bureau has been predicting that by around mid-century that white people would be reduced to minority status around the world. And this isn't something that's confined in North America. We see uh, uh, very uh, dramatic uh, demographic transitions in other countries as well, Canada, uh, England, and other European nations. And so um, the election of Barack Obama really seemed to give credence to that particular forecast. And so the number of groups, far right groups expanded during his presidency. There's a monitoring group based in Montgomery, Alabama called the Southern Poverty Law Center. And they tabulate the number of these so-called hate groups and related groups. And they significantly expanded 
during the presidency of Barack Obama. Mm. So yes, it seemed that his election did indeed have a mobilizing effect, not on, only on the white nationalist movement, but also, uh, for example, the neo-reactionaries. They mm. tend to be more libertarian in orientation. Of course, Obama was seen as an advocate of big government. He supported bailouts because there was the uh, the so-called Great Recession that commenced around 2007, 2008. Mm -hmm. And of course, he was the architect of Obamacare, right. this idea that we would have a health care, universal health care in one form or another. And so that offended the sensibilities of some right-leaning libertarians who, who prefer a smaller government. Right. Um, and I'm curious to know, since we're talking about race, how uh, mm -hmm. gender and social class play into these movements. You know, is this movement, at least from, from what I'm reading and seeing, is primarily a movement about wh uh, white males? I would say, mm -hmm. in the vast majority. But is that true? Is that accurate? Are, are they branching out to women and uh, non-white people? Yes. Yes. Um, now, historically, the far right has been composed primar primarily of men, white men. Um, but first, women. There are some indications that women are be beginning to feature more prominently. Mm. Uh, some examples would be uh, Lauren Southern, uh, Lana Lochtef, who uh, has a site called Red Ice, of course, uh, there's the journalist, uh, Ann Coulter, just to name a few. And as far as um, uh, the far right being more racially diverse, mm -hmm. yeah, I think we're seeing some indications of that. For example, the Proud Boys, mm -hmm. um, its leader, Enrico Terrio, is a black Hispanic. Now, uh, recently it transpired that he's an FBI informant, so I can't really tell about his total sincerity to the, uh, the, the movement. Uh, but perhaps the most charismatic leader of the far right today is a young man by the name of Nicholas Fuentes, and he has a Mexican grandfather, right. and uh, but he identifies as white. Right. A few years back, an academic in England named Eric Kaufman wrote a fascinating book called White Shift. And in the book, he predicted that there would be a reconceptualization of what it means to be white. So yes, he, he saw that there was um, demographic transformations taking place in the Western world, but he predicted that ultimately these minorities would be absorbed and uh, the countries like England, Germany, uh, so on and so forth, they would still retain their ethnic core. They would absorb more ethnic minorities, but over time, uh, it, there would be kind of like a reconceptualization of what it would mean to be white. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's something we're seeing. Uh, some people, for example, say that uh, Latinos, more and more of them are migrating to the conservative movement, to the Republican parties. Mm -hmm. uh, now, some people have been um, uh, predicting this for years, and they said, no, no, that doesn't look like it's going to take place. Uh, but assimila assimilation has been a very powerful force in America for many years. And so, yeah, we, we could see that. I think more and more uh, racial and ethnic minorities uh, could become activist in the movement. So yeah, in that sense, uh, oddly enough, there seems to be kind of like this big tent uh, process taking place where uh, the movement does seem to be more inclusive, not only to women, but some ethnic minorities as well. Yeah. Well, I have one question. Does, is it that race really actually matters to these people? Like they're scared to death that there's not going to be enough white people in the world left? Or is this just something to galvanize people around to collect power? 
And no, I think a lot of people are generally fearful that um, white people, some white people, if they're reduced to minority status, that the country will be a less congenial place to the, uh, congenial place for them. Mm. Uh, they'll invoke things like affirmative action. Uh, they think that that's uh, blankly discriminatory and that will undermine their life opportunities. Uh, they're worried about violence. Uh, for example, there was uh, quite a bit of urban mayhem uh, in 2020 in the wake of uh, the uh, death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And so, yeah, some people were fearful that, uh, yeah, they could be victimized uh, by violence. Uh, they're fearful that um, uh, the economy won't be able to accommodate enough people in the job market. So uh, more immigration uh, will mean uh, fewer opportunities in the economy and the job market, so on and so forth. So, no, I don't think it's something that they're just invoking to try to get uh, people to follow their mo uh, their movement. No, I think they're genuinely concerned about the def demographic uh, trends in uh, the United States and more broadly the Western world. You know, e even though the demographics may change, it's interesting to me, given our earlier conversation about the diversity uh, um, in Mexico and in other countries, how there's still going to be a lot of white Latinos who, who would still identify and white people in America would still be the largest group. You would have to unify mm -hmm. all the other non-white groups to even get to a majority status. Uh, but you've already begun to see it, I, I guess, in a state like California, where you've begun to see a new form of, of, of politics. I mean, California itself is already minority majority, but they're you know, still a, a very diverse state. And there's still a lot of white people there and a lot of Asian people uh, in the state as well. So you've begun to see it. Uh, I'm not sure if Texas has reached this point as well. But um, yes, it does certainly uh, instigate and probably provoke a lot of the far right fears. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would say race is the primarily the primary factor, mm -hmm. really, that uh, animates the far right. Yeah. yeah, but do you think having more women at home make? Yes, well, they uh, advocate a traditional role for women that yeah they should be homemakers and have more children. And uh, yeah, and of course this is a multifaceted issue. Uh, one thing is changing the changing economy. Yep. Uh, it's more difficult for people to survive on just one income. Right. So out of practicality, more women have entered the labor force. Uh, more women, of course, uh, go to college study. In fact, uh, most uh, people enrolled in undergraduate education are, are women today. Yeah. Yeah. That's been determined to be the greatest uh, uh, mechanism of birth control in the world, female education. Right. And so, of course, yeah, that, uh, that undercuts vicinity as well. Uh, so, yeah, they're worried about these demographic trends and they, yeah, they think that uh, white women should have more babies. And yeah, and uh, we, we see people like Viktor Orban, uh, the leader of uh, Hungary, he has said uh, pretty much uh, similar, similar statements. Uh, even Vladimir Putin in uh, Russia, uh, he has made efforts to try to increase uh, the fertility rate in uh, Russia, albeit with just modest results. Yeah. Um, what's the threat assessment of such a movement to American democracy? Should government officials feel threatened by some of these elements? Um, you know, here I'm thinking about the militia movement, I'm assuming is part of this uh, far right uh, family. And I'm curious to know what you think uh, the threat is from some of these elements to the stability of American democracy. Well, I don't really see an existential threat. Uh, we've seen, of course, that back in 1995, there was the bombing of the Oklahoma City building. Yeah, and that was really seemed to be kind of a one-off. Timothy McVeigh, Terry Nichols, Michael Fortier, uh, they were later arrested for that 
terrorist threat, but that seemed to be basically an isolated incident. There is potential. We've seen a lot of lone wolf violence mm -hmm. over the past 20 years or so. There are a number of reasons for that. Uh, but since 9-11, there's really been a big homeland security apparatus created in America. And so I don't really see much threat of terrorism coming from clandestine networks. Uh, because it's really difficult for uh, groups, organized groups, to carry out any kind of uh, serious terrorist campaign in America. Every now and then we hear about conspiracies, but it seems like they're nipped in the bud rather quickly because there is so much surveillance today. There's a big homeland security apparatus. So I don't see uh, an immediate terrorist threat from the far right. But the issues that really give rise to the movement could be potentially disruptive. Mm. And so in isolation, I don't see the movement as any kind of serious existential threat, but um, a lot of the things that give rise to it, the, the, uh, the uh, uh, issues that we see today, uh, things like uh, economic angst, a lot of young people are having a hard time finding their niche in the economy, uh, urban mayhem like we saw in 2020. So if those issues and in the political polarization mm. that we've seen over the past uh, couple of decades, which, uh, which is real. Uh, when the, it first emerged after the 2000 election, uh, Trump, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Al Gore versus uh, George Bush, right. the electoral map was divided into red and blue states. Yeah, and the, so that's something uh, that's real. And so I think if that polariz polarization persists, uh, yes, uh, then in the future, uh, we could see a more chaotic period mm. in American politics and American society more generally. Yeah, I mean, it feels like January 6th was kind of the start of something like that. Or tell me if I'm wrong, but an organized gun-wielding group of far-right activists who want to go see Donald Trump speak literally stormed the Capitol. How did you see that fitting yeah. into like our political moment? Yeah, I think that caught a lot of people by surprise. It, it was really kind of indicative, yes. I think of... Um, a uh, crisis of legitimacy uh, that we're seeing in American politics. So many people were disaffected that they would do something like that. Uh, President uh, Trump was implicated in that, although he said that the, the march should be peaceful. Nevertheless, uh, a lot of people were very agitated. They thought that there was a stolen election. And uh, yeah, it culminated in a very unfortunate event uh, that I think really sent shockwaves throughout the country. Now, in the far right, opinion is divided on that. Uh, a lot of people uh, think that the election was stolen and that it was a legitimate course of action to take. Other people think that it was really a major strategic mistake that it gave uh, the government, the FBI, the Justice Department, uh, all the more reason now to crack down on the far right, get them bogged, it's getting them bogged down into uh, criminal trials and perhaps maybe even civil trials later on. And so ultimately that will be detrimental to their movement. Yeah, I, I'm glad you, you talked a, a bit about uh, the movement, the far right's mo uh, movement in relationship to Donald Trump. I read a report by Axios recently, maybe two weeks ago, said that Donald Trump, uh, if he runs and is reelected in 2024, that one of his plans would be tiring all federal employees. And that reminded me of what you talked about earlier in this episode about Curtis Yarvin and that sort of idea of replacing all federal employees. And it seems like their goal would be to 
get rid of all federal employees and and put in their appointments and their supporters in back into those positions. So I'm curious to know, what is the relationship between the far right and Donald Trump? Yeah, well, first, uh, Donald Trump, soon after he became elected president, he said he was going to drain the swamp. Mm-hmm. And he often complained about the so-called deep state. That's this notion that there are these entrenched bureaucrat, entrenched bureaucrats and that they would resist his policies of his administration and undermine his ability to govern. Uh, yeah, and so that was something uh, he was he was very strident in that. Uh, a lot of that goes back to his uh, chief strategist, Stephen Bannon. Mm-hmm. He wanted this to dismantle much of the administrative state. And uh, Stephen Bannon is believed to be an admirer of Curtis Yarvin. And so that's another connection that we see mm-hmm. between neo-reaction and the Trump administration. Peter Thiel. Uh, Peter Thiel is very close to Donald Trump. Donald Trump was very um, was very thankful that Peter Thiel supported him, openly supported him. In fact, Peter Thiel spoke before the Republican National Convention, which was held in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, his hometown, in 2016. And so, uh, yeah, I, I see some connections uh, between neo-reaction and the Trump movement. Yeah, and so I wouldn't necessarily characterize Donald Trump as far right, although he does certainly champion a lot of the policy positions that resonate with the far right. Most important in that regard is it restricting immigration. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, build the wall. That was really his signature position that really resonated with people when he was running for office in 2016. Yeah, it was uh, his talk about immigration and having borders, I, I think, pl- kind of plays into that. But at the same time, I've also heard Donald Trump talk about needing vaccinations. And kind of even during his rallies, he talks about mm-hmm. himself getting vaccinated and that people should get vaccinated. And he preempts the audience from booing him, which he knows that that's how they feel. And however, he's willing to some take a stand on vaccines. And I think part of it is because he was the president during the creation of the vaccine. And and so I think he thinks like, and also I assume he doesn't want his supporters to be unvaccinated and start dying also because of what he endured, I guess, himself. So I'm, I'm curious to know, he, he has to kind of play a delicate balance there with the far, far right, kind of give them some things, but once in a while, he's willing to take them on. Yeah, well, he was yeah, he he was the person who really sponsored Operation Warp Speed. That was really his initiative and you would think that would be a big success story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, uh, for some reason uh, a lot of people in the far right are skeptical of vaccines. I don't see why that's an inherently conservative position that you would be against vaccines, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that just kind of a function of the way uh, some issues take hold in political subcultures today. Yeah. Uh, Sam Harris, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of him, the yes. so-called uh, one, uh, new atheist. He talked He talked about how today we get our information from tribes. And so uh, a position that's not really seemingly connected to political conservatism will nevertheless seem to take hold in a particular subculture. Yeah, and that's the, the anti-vax sentiment that seems to be more pronounced in the far right than right. in the mainstream and, and the far uh, left. Although to be fair, you know, the far left has for many years that I followed, especially out in California, tends to be very against vaccines, not, not necessarily COVID-19 vaccination, but I meant other forms of vaccination for their children. And, mm-hmm. and mainly because they felt like companies 
uh, had an incentive to give these vaccines. They tried to link them to autism despite having the link, but they wanted to say, oh my God, autism has been increasing. There must be some link to the vaccinations. And they tried to claim it was mercury inside the vaccines and things like that. So it's to me, it's even a subculture that kind of includes both camps, both the left and the right, Uh, um, less on the right until recently, but it was certainly something I thought. Yeah, I think a distrust of big pharma of big kind pharma. of yeah. spans the political the, the spectrum. Yeah. Now, I think for the far right, it's been captured about what COVID-19 vaccinations and things. But before, I would say COVID, the pre-COVID era, it was primarily, and maybe this is wrong, it's not following the statistics, was primarily a concern a lot of liberal left-wing progressive uh, families had about vaccine, vaccinating their kids and worried about, you know, the the ramifications of that but uh, i i yeah thank you so much um for coming on today on panorama i think we've had a a great conversation um i i just want to ask you one final question is what do you think the future of the far right will be down the road i know you don't have a crystal ball but that's a good question i think the far right will be around for a while primarily because the issues that give rise to it i think will become more pronounced Mm. Uh, the changing demographics in the country, immigration, consternation about the economy. Mm-hmm. I think those are issues that are going to be around for a while. And so for that reason, I think the far right will still uh, have a place in American culture. Uh, will they moderate or will they become more extreme? I think, yes, if we see some of them get elected, like MTG in Georgia, uh, you know, they could be kind of like a sounding board to get a lot of these ideas out to the public. Uh, but if they're faced with the, the, the day-to-day responsibilities of running the government, right. um, that could kind of have a moderating effect, forcing them really to uh, reach across the aisle and govern. But that's really, I think, a crisis uh, of liberalism that we see today, that uh, mm-hmm. uh, this we see polarization and an unwillingness for the two parties in Congress to cooperate. More and more, we see that the president really has to take it upon himself to rule by executive fiat, by issuing executive orders. And so uh, this, I think, is a worrisome trend in American politics, politics, this kind of uh, this increasing difficulty for the two major parties to work together and compromise and get and solve the depressing issues of the day. But thank you so much, Professor George Michael from Westfield State University. I feel a lot smarter now about the far right. Uh, so thanks a lot for coming on Panorama. I really appreciate you spending your time. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Dan, and thank you, Sarah. Thank you.